Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we begin with Harry Littman talking about the grim possibility that a phrase written by Justice Kavanaugh in a concurrence recently citing Chief Justice Rehnquist in the Bush v. Gore case from 2000 is a marker, and it's one that could signal that there could be or that they're preparing for a replay of Bush v. Gore in this election. And we're going to get Harry Littman to explain all the reasons why. And then we turn to our elections. Mark Cooper is joining us, and he's going to talk about the possible parallels between the historic vote in Chile a week ago to throw out the Pinochet Constitution, the tyrant's constitution, and write a new one, one without the participation of the politicians and with gender parity on the writing commission. Mark thinks that that plebiscite was historic, but he also thinks that the U.S. election is another historic plebiscite with huge consequences, and we'll get him to explain why. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'm really happy. And we're fortunate to have Harry Littman with us again. We're going to probe the possibilities and the rationale that this election might end up in the Supreme Court. Harry Littman is a former U.S. attorney and deputy assistant attorney general. He's currently the legal affairs columnist for the LA Times opinion page, and that's what spurred this conversation. He's also a professor of constitutional law at UCLA and UCSD, and you can see him very often commenting on all kinds of issues on MSNBC, CNN, and I guess Fox News. I haven't seen that. Uh, And he's a lawyer in private practice. He does everything. And on top of that, he's the creator and executive producer of the podcast, now very popular, Talking Feds. So welcome to Jacobin Radio, Harry. Thank you. (laughs) So in your op-ed in Friday's Los Angeles time, you raised the possibility, and I'm going to say the grim possibility that we might soon be facing a replay of Bush v. Gore in 2000, in which the Supreme Court swoops in to save the day for Trump and the Republicans by interfering in a state presidential election. And on Friday, you probably saw it, Trump tweeted, the Supreme Court is not going to let Joe Biden win. Almost in lockstep, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, in a concurrence on uh, to the Supreme Court's ruling in a legal dispute concerning the constitutionality of Wisconsin's electoral law, he cited the precedent of Chief Justice Rehnquist's ruling in Bush v. Gore. And he did so to back up the court's ruling that the Wisconsin State District Court ruling, striking down Wisconsin law, requiring absentee ballots to be received by Election Day, was itself unconstitutional. Now, listeners will by now find this amazing that Kavanaugh cited Rehnquist as precedent because it's shocking given that the Rehnquist court itself said that its decision should not be taken as precedent. And as you say in your article, Harry, 
And I'm quoting, the decision was so tenuous and rushed that the justices themselves, in a stunning departure from judicial practice, wrote into the unsigned opinion that it should not serve as a precedent. It was limited only to present circumstances. So nonetheless, Kavanaugh embraced Rehnquist's opinion pretty clearly in order to prepare the ground perhaps for the Supreme Court to intervene in similar circumstances. So I want you to explain all of this, Harry. <laughs> and if you could just begin maybe by reviewing for the listeners what Bush v. Gore was. Right. Well, for those who don't remember and bear the bitter scars. Yeah. And so the 2000 election, I think people know this much that they at the very end, it was tumultuous and went over the deadline And then some five weeks after, with the vote still sort of impossibly close in Florida and an automatic recount having been triggered, the Supreme Court, it was actually the second time they'd heard the case, did swoop in and put the big boot on the neck of the election. And actually, you know, Al Gore did something then that possibly Donald Trump wouldn't do that, but the court had sufficient credibility and capital. It was certainly spending quite a bit of it on that decision that Gore then came out and said, the court has spoken and capitulated. There were many different moves still to make, and we'll be learning about them if we go across these difficult paths in the coming weeks, but about possible action in state legislatures or in the Congress itself. But Gore saluted, even though he felt, I think, and most of the legal community felt it was a rank decision that was really there just to install Bush, or you could try to put it more charitably and say just to stop the chaotic kind of bloodletting that we were in. But it was a very important and tenuous rationale because Florida, the Supreme Court, and Florida was in the process of recounting. And the the difference were a couple hundred. And Florida Supreme Court had ruled a couple times that under Florida law, you had to apply such and such a standard. You'll remember hanging chads and the like and the intent of the voter. And that was a decision of state law. And it's axiomatic that the U.S. Supreme Court can't interpret state law. The highest body to interpret it is the state Supreme Court. And what Rehnquist said, and even that only garnered the support of two other justices, Thomas and uh, Scalia, was that there's a special role for the legislature in any state to play. And the Florida legislature had done something that the Florida State Supreme Court had then overruled. Now, almost anybody would say today, and they still would, and I talk about Ruth Ginsburg, an important opinion she did for the court. Look, when you say the legislature, that's part and parcel of the whole state legal system. And if the state Supreme Court corrects the legislature or puts the extra constitutional interpretation on what they've done, that's how the state law system works. So it was... Anomalous in the extreme? I, I No, I'd go farther. It was illegitimate for Rehnquist to suggest that somehow the U.S. Supreme Court could swoop in and chastise the Florida Supreme Court for doing what? For somehow not 
following the clear intent of the legislature. That's all state law stuff. That's all not U.S. Supreme Court stuff. That's what they did. And it's one of the reasons that Bush v. Gore has this terrible odor about it. And it's probably one of the half dozen, dozen most infamous decisions of the Supreme Court. So here comes Justice Kavanaugh on Wednesday. It is in the Wisconsin case. And the Wisconsin case actually doesn't concern what the Wisconsin Supreme Court did. It concerns what the federal court did. So it was a very unnecessary move for him to make. But he drops this long footnote with this sentence that was like, you know, shocking and horrifying to me and to many others. And it said, as Chief Justice Rehnquist persuasively argued in Bush v. Gore, what, what, what? And, you know, that clearly did put down a marker for the ability to make this same discredited argument. So that means would a dispute rise from the state system, which if you think about it, probably most of them would, where they would normally have to be hands off because it's a state law issue. He's now, you know, Jimmy'd open the door enough for some argument. And when you're five and you control, all you need is some argument. No one's who's going to contradict you to do a replay of Bush v. Gore. And I've gone on too long, and I know you have much to say. I just want to quickly put in the marker of saying Mm -hmm. Bush v. Gore was a legal travesty. In addition, it was the factual equivalent of a solar eclipse at the same time (laughs) as a lunar. The things that happened to make the state, the votes be separated by 500 are such a concatenation of improbabilities that I don't think it's that likely it would replay. But if it would... Yep, they seem ready to do it, which would be, you would think, the end of the republic as we know it. Well, there's so many things that have happened for us to actually say that. And every day there's more. But I want to go back just one thing before we get to the current situation, which is the key and the important one. But I don't know if I understand properly exactly what Rehnquist saw that Florida was out of line with the legislature's intent. They stopped the count, but I could you just explain it like what he used as his argument, which you've said was a travesty, but also others have said was universally acknowledged to be a very weak argument. Yes. Well, the real weakness is the point I made, just that he was purporting in any way to be second guessing the Florida Supreme Court on Florida state law. The specific linchpin, because there's a clause in the Constitution that says electors shall be determined as the legislature of each state says, he saw that as a constitutional hook for elevating the role of the legislature. And the legislature had certain rules that actually, really going back into the weeds in Florida, didn't explain anything about hanging chads. For those who <laughs> for whom this is ancient history, there was this really crazy several weeks where people in different counties were trying to scrutinize disputed ballots and argue about whether this guy was intending to vote for Gore, intending to vote for Bush, or you just have to throw it out. Now, the Florida Supreme Court ordered a recount that was already a disputed proposition, and they announced a 
intent of the voter standard. Logically enough, you have to figure out what to do. You have, and they, they instructed the different counties, do your best to figure out the intent of the voter. The Florida law didn't say that exactly what had been passed by the Republican legislature. There's a subtext here, which is the legislatures are overwhelmingly, as it so happens now and then, dominated by Republicans. And there was a lot of flat-out partisan, the Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, others you remember, there's a lot of really rank political partisan action. But so the particular hook for rank was, was saying that the Florida Supreme Court, by announcing this legal standard that was different from the words that had been used by the legislature to announce when a vote should be counted, had somehow violated their clear intent. So what? Ah, well, there's this clause in the Constitution that says the legislatures have this certain role. And he, unlike any other situation where any kind of control by a state entity would be subject to the interpretation of the highest court in the state, that somehow had to give way. And so here sat the U.S. Supreme Court to decide about just how far. It it was, in addition, Susie, very murky because Mm. if things were a little close, okay, but Rehnquist wanted to assert that when you clearly violate the intent of the legislature, then somehow it's a federal constitutional violation. That's a proposition that's gotten no purchase since then until last Until now. And and also, I mean, as you said, but it was so egregious in the sense that even afterwards they said this is a one-off. And I think that's when Scalia said move on. Yeah, get get (laughs) over it. I mean, he was trying to say – Basically, I think, yeah, we kind of cheated, but somebody had to do something, which, of course, was false. You know, they could have taken a couple days, all indications, by the way. I mean, we start at the point that it's pretty clear. Remember, butterfly ballot and other things. But it's pretty clear that more people in Florida wanted to vote for Gore than wanted to vote for Bush. That's why the networks, based on their exit polls, had called it for Gore. And as you went forward, it would trend in that Direction And so the main point even of Scalia, that it was somehow patriotic mm-hmm. and up to the Supreme Court to staunch the blood flow, was just wrong. We'd had this crazy five weeks. We could have had five and a half weeks. But I want to ask then, what is the analogy that Kavanaugh is trying to set up between the Wisconsin yeah. case and the Florida one in 2000? And why is it that, as you just said, and, and maybe you have to repeat it, is why is Kavanaugh's reasoning weak? Okay, well, it was weak in Wisconsin because it Wisconsin was from a federal court. This was just a footnote, and that mm-hmm. made it somewhat more ominous that he was setting it down there. But where it would be opposite, and there was another opinion later in the week by the three conservatives who, with Justice Barrett, would be the putative gang of five here, is in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. and there are many cases, there are a handful around the country, but Pennsylvania is the swing state of swing states, held that because of the virus and because of, you know, other complications from this year, logically enough, as long as your vote was postmarked by the third, it could be received up to three days later. I mean, we already know the post office is saying we're not sure we can get things in, et cetera. 
That would be, and that they've already, in fact, put a marker in for that very case. So the idea would be to argue before the legislature just said it has to be received by the third. That's when we do our votes. So for the Supreme Court to now say you have three extra days for these reasons was a change in that intent. Of course, it was a change to account for the, you know, the sort of things the courts do, all these facts on the ground. Kavanaugh said, oh, it could reverse the vote. And that was a real tell because Justice Kagan said in dissent to him, what are you talking about? There's no count until the votes are in. He was already drinking the Trump Kool-Aid which is, uh, I think, the only shot he's got, stopping the music at the end of the day on the third and saying that's where it goes. But the argument would be, so why is it discredited? First, mm-hmm. for the for the 10 reasons that Rehnquist would have been discredited. And then because, you know, I think the, the fairest interpretation of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court is not that it's somehow, you know, completely reversed the state legislature, but that it has done a common sense Uh, based on a constitutional provision, by the way, that favors the right to vote, a common sense gloss on the normal rule for an extraordinary year when when people otherwise have to maybe decide between their health and their vote. If you take a step back and the whole thrust around the country that at every turn, Republicans, there are, there are 300 cases in 44 states right now. Yeah, I was going to ask and you And pretty that. much all of them are Republicans trying to restrict the franchise and Democrats trying to increase it. And I understand why that's, there's a political valence to that. But come on, people in the, are trying to vote and they're doing everything they can. And for reasons that have nothing to do with their own fault, but the crazy circumstances of 2020, they might not be able to, and that it shouldn't be obvious that, you know, we try to do what we can to count their votes. The notion in Kavanaugh's opinion is somehow this would cause extra chaos or why? You're just trying to, to count people's votes. Trump will say, he has said, he'll say Tuesday, there's all this fraud that can happen, but that's, you know, been thoroughly discredited. So there's really, you know, the whole notion that they're trying so hard to apply the old rules to keep thousands and thousands of votes from being counted is just, it just seems wrongheaded from the get-go. Well, and you said in your op-ed, too, that this was a marker that Kavanaugh had thrown down. It's very possible that this will be moot and that the gigantic voter turnout that we're seeing will decide the election before any of this is possible. But in the event, you know, and certainly, as you said, there's over 300 cases that Republicans have presented now, you know, to try to mess up the vote, I guess. So they go both ways, but they're mainly Republican. But I mean, sometimes Republicans are on our defendants. But in every instance, the Republicans are trying to reduce the numbers of votes and the Democrats to increase. So I guess the question is, Kavanaugh's thrown down a marker to kind of indicate that the Supreme Court could be involved in this, to throw it to Trump on phony and supportable legal grounds, right? And so that's really the question. Maybe you've just explained this in Wisconsin, but how could this be constitutional? Yeah, and let me just say again, you can imagine there is a general rule, Roberts is trying to say this, that you don't want a federal court 
you know, we, we're generally used to states kind of making their own rules. It's a sort of precept of federalism for how the mm-hmm. vote's going to come, how it's going to be counted. And if, as you know, some do-gooder federal court comes in and changes things from what the state had done, even if the state's being a little bit uncharitable, well, you can see that that might be cause for concern in terms of a federal state power structure. So that would be one thing. And that is what's happened in Wisconsin. But the much more likely and by far more problematic instance, and this is the first thing to think about, Susie, when you're talking about, will Bush v. Gore come back? Who are the Republicans trying to reverse? A state Supreme Court or a federal court of appeals? Because if it's a state Supreme Court that ruled on state law grounds, that's when we get to the, you know, what should have been the one-off you know, it's like it's Halloween there. And, I, you know, but and now that the fetid corpse of Bush v. Gore is coming back out of the ground that was supposed to be sealed in the crypt forever. That's the thing that's going to be so controversial. And look, part of me says Bush v. Gore was such an outrage. This would be a hydrogen bomb. On the other hand, of course, they got away with Bush v. Gore. And who knows if that kind of raw power grab, it, it feels like we don't have a democracy anymore if that happens. Well, just but that doesn't that, mean, you know, that brazenness is certainly, they're, they're capable of it. Well, they are. I mean, it's been stunning. And I want to go back to that one second, but you just mentioned, you know, the 300 lawsuits yeah. that are underway. Yeah. To stop the counting of mail-in ballots. We know that Trump has consistently said that mail-in ballot is somehow illegitimate. And that's this deadline problem, by the way. Yeah, that's the deadline. But in Texas, they want to invalidate 100,000 votes because they were dropped off in drive-through voting centers. That's right. After done. And Texas (laughs) has already ruled. Here's a good example of what a state can do. The Republican secretary of state says, hey, we're going to have one and one only drop off box per county in Houston. That's like, you know, four million people or something. We're going to have one. Why do you do that? It's obvious why you do that. On the other hand, if a federal court just tried to reverse that, all right, I can see that's problematic. But if the Texas Supreme Court says this violates Texas law and then the Supreme Court tries to take it on upon itself to favor the Secretary of State and disfavor the state Supreme Court, that's funky. It is. And I mean, we've got other things, too. So you've got in every state something going on, even in Nevada, they say they're going to yeah. match the signatures of every single ballot to see which ones they can throw I out. Know. So you start from the premise that they want to throw out That's as right. many ballots as possible. And it also yeah. raises, you know, I think it was in 2004, uh, people went to Carter and said, would his, you know, Election Integrity Institute, I can't remember what it was called, consider monitoring American elections. And he said yeah. it doesn't meet the minimum standards, you know, for transparency that they require before they come in to give their imprimatur to it. And then on the, you see that you've got these like in one state, you can have it postmarked November 3rd. Another state, it has to arrive by November 3rd. Right. And, you know, in it's, another state, you, it, it's crazy. It, I mean, we're going to look back on this. You could say it's crazy. You could say it's federalism. But, you know, when we look back on this 50 years and and you know that states can vary so much. No, but now it never. Well, it did matter before. We think maybe in 1960. Right. The little rules in Texas and Illinois, maybe Johnson was able to leverage. But it's really Bush v. Gore where it first came to the fore that these little differences 
could be decisive. Of course, they're supposed to have these little differences. That's part of federalism. And for the U.S. Supreme Court, especially the conservative faction that supposedly likes federalism and doesn't like overweening federal power, to insert itself in to slap down a state and decide an election, something's gone awry. Yeah. So the other thing, too, is I want to get on, go back finally to one more point about Bush v. Gore. But just, you know, you were talking about the uh, very bald power grab that we're watching. And, of course, getting Amy Coney Barrett confirmed this week while the election is happening or last week, you know, is one instance of it. But McConnell now in a you may or may know in an interview with Hugh Hewitt this week said they won't consider the economic relief package until at least January. But right now in November and December, he intends to fill the Seventh Circuit and also to have time to fill the First Circuit. He says, we're going to clean the plate, clean all the district judges off as well. So, you know, (laughs) maybe you should just comment on that power grab and the way that it's. I mean, it's not they've been. Yeah. Yeah, I you know, power grab, yes. But look, Barrett's confirmation is the culmination of a 40-year plan where and and in, during that time the Republicans have been much more focused and organized about judges and filling these slots. McConnell it seems to me is ready to go down on everything. Stimulus doesn't care what he gets done if he fills the judges. Now there's a lot you can analyze why this is so important to them. Does it have to do with the evangelical vote? Does it have I Sheldon Whitehouse was on Talking Feds. We taped it yesterday with Sheldon Whitehouse and Adam Schiff and Kristen Clark. And Sheldon Whitehouse has this whole thing about it's simply the dark money from, you know, the Koch brothers that goes through and tells McConnell to jump. And he says how high because that funds all his elections. But for whatever reason, they've been very focused and methodical, as is their political right, much and much more so than the Democrats. Now, mm. it does seem as if the Barrett confirmation is the sort of final kick in the teeth if the Democrats do take the Senate, at least to hear Senator Whitehouse and this podcast will, will drop Monday. But, you know, they they really do, I think, want to change things around. But yeah, McConnell, until recently, and when Barrett was nominated, there were zero vacancies at the courts of appeal level and they've he's done two or three hundred and that's that is a reflection of just the you know trump trump doesn't know trump doesn't care but he somehow learned that this is something he's got to do right he was right about to learn it that way and i think it's it was a a very important part of his coalition you'd ask evangelical voters you know why Look how he behaves. How can you possibly support him? And and invariably, they would say the judges. It's the judges. And the Dems are always putting in these moderates uh, versus the extreme that the Republicans are putting in. You know, there's some blame to go around here for the Democrats haven't been as focused on it as the Republicans. Well, just finally, then let's go back to Bush v. Gore. And, you know, you mentioned that Gore conceded. And at the time I remember the election, it was unthinkable that it was going on for a month and it wasn't decided. And they were, you know, uh, and so Gore in the interest of stability and democracy and all of that, whatever conceded. And, and I just wondered why, you know, if you have any other thoughts about why he gave into the outrage 
and the Democratic Party and the media went along with it. And, and so I guess the question is, what's to say that won't happen again? And what could the Democrats do? Yeah. Well, why did he? I mean, I do think it was, you know, he was a he's he's somebody who we think of as what our institutional leaders were like then. And we don't have that guy now. Right. Trump. He insisted to Trump last that that the three million votes he was behind in the popular votes were all illegally cast. I mean, we have quite an issue here. It seems very possible that he simply won't concede. And at some point he'll have to be ushered out. You are right that after this point, this would be a whole nother podcast. I don't want to put your viewers to sleep, but after December 14th, there there are different dates for breaking impasses. And it has happened, for instance, in 1800, that it all had to go to the House of Representatives. Adam Schiff, who was also on this podcast, was saying yesterday, it's not going to go to the courts. If this happens, we're going to resolve it in Congress. Of course, that's what – so it, there's an alternate universe in 2000 where Gore said, Supreme Court has spoken. Now I'm going to Congress and, you know, a whole sort of different kind of tug of war would have ensued. And then basically that's the sort of thing he halted to spare the country. You don't see that same kind of public spirit as being too likely uh, this year. And that's under any circumstance. If there's actually a plausible case where the court has so held and it's not accepted by much of the public, that's like genuine constitutional crisis land, right? That's whoever wins that tug of war. It's just not clear that that the the, uh, the political institutions of the country hold. Right. And I guess the last question about that is who who will stop the Supreme Court? You know, Roberts himself has really tried, I think, to hold up the legitimacy of the court. And yeah. even all of these things have delegitimized it and showed it to be openly partisan. So, yeah, I mean, if 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 and I just want to repeat on the facts, it's hard to come by. But I think it's pretty clear, not Kavanaugh, not Alito, not Thomas. Not Gorsuch. That's based on just the opinions last week. And that leaves. And I got to say no. So if it comes to five and they have, as they did in 2000, they're resolving an issue that supposedly resolves the presidency. I think it's an intolerable outrage that we simply can't accept. And what will happen is it will get accepted. You know, and so it's, it's like the, you know, it seems like it just can't be, but I, if it really comes to that and you're at an impasse, will will nevertheless on the 20th Trump hold up his hand. Roberts doesn't want this to happen. Maybe some patriotism will prevail on the court, but what should happen? I mean, to hear Schiff yesterday, you really could see the scenario in which the court holds And now here comes the Congress. And now here come the state legislators. And I'm just here to tell you from reading up on this and, you know, talking to really smart people like Norm Ornstein, it ain't clear what happens then. So what that's the sort of definition of a constitutional crisis. Right. Uh, So so we're all thinking, you know, we're all channeling landslide, 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 (laughs) even in which case, you know, I think you'll see Trump try to tried to proffer some reasons that he should go forward. But I think it'll have to be really out there before, you know, this would be 
the entire reputation of the Supreme Court of everyone to actually go in with it. So he'll need to manufacture something plausible. Of course, the DOJ might be with him. They've made sort of new rules for the game. I'm going to just take a deep breath now and hold it till Thursday. So, <gasps> well, Harry Lippman, thanks so much. I'm going to try to channel landslide too and yeah. hope that, you know, I mean, we're seeing good signs. Uh, so I, I'm not going to say anything more. I'll hold that's my it. breath. That's too. it. That's it. That's thank it. you yeah. so much for joining us. And thanks and for having for the me. List, thank you. And for the listeners, find Talking Feds at wherever you find podcast. Wherever your you get podcasts. their podcast. Yeah, this is a really great one to listen to. White House and Schiff and Kristen Clark. And thanks, thanks a lot, for, Susie. Harry Littman, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We just ended that interview with Harry Littman in which he said, contravene everything that he said before that, everybody's whispering and channeling, landslide, landslide, landslide. So in this half hour, I'm really pleased to have Mark Cooper with us. And we're going to talk about landslides, both actual and potential, in uh, Chile and the United States. And by way of introduction, I attended or listened to a fascinating seminar on Friday, uh, thanks to Zoom, uh, at the University of Chile. And it was featuring Mark Cooper talking about the U.S. election while making connections and citing similarities and differences with what has been happening politically and socially in Chile. So I invited Mark to discuss some of that today. And first, let me just let the listeners know what happened in Chile. There was a historic plebiscite, and it goes back, if you want to think it goes way back, but we could start with about a year ago. There was a gigantic protest movement in Chile, which began innocently enough with some students jumping a, a turnstile, rejecting the small hike in uh, metro fairs, but it proved to be the spark that exploded into some of the biggest marches in Chilean history, and that's saying a lot, and bringing on a kind of broad reckoning with the neoliberal model that began in Chile under Pinochet in that famous coup from uh, September 11th. 1973. And as many of the banners proclaimed throughout those massive uh, protests, neoliberalism began in Chile and it will end in Chile. And Pinochet's constitution was imposed in Chile in 1980, many say fraudulently, but in it, it enshrined the privatization of social rights and, and nearly everything else. The protests this time, a year ago, during this last year, were met with tear gas, water cannons, human rights violations, and hundreds of devastating injuries when protesters' eyes were permanently damaged by rubber bullets, some losing their sight completely. Thousands were wounded, five were killed, and it ended up with the protesters, who didn't think of it as it was going, but as it developed, that they were going to demand a constituent assembly and a new constitution. And as that continued to gain traction and support, 
President Pinera, right winger, uh, conceded that point and saying he was open to calls for a new constitution. Last Sunday, Chileans voted overwhelmingly, almost 80 percent, to scrap the Pinochet constitution and write a new one. And they not only voted to draft a new constitution, but specified who should write it. In other words, that there would be no automatic inclusion of politicians and that the new what commission, I guess you call it, to write it should have gender parity with seats reserved for indigenous delegates. That's still to be negotiated. But it's an amazing victory, and it throws out what they call the tyrant's constitution. So with all of that, Mark Cooper, journalist, retired journalism professor at USC, longtime broadcaster and author of several books, including Pinochet and Me, uh, Rollover Che Guevara, Travels of a Radical Reporter, and The Last Honest Place in America about Las Vegas, joins us. Mark spent those years in Chile from 1970 to 73 and thereafter returned many times to report on what was happening in Chile under the dictatorship, including being there for the 1988 plebiscite on Pinochet, the see or no, yes or no vote. And we'll talk about that. Right now, though, Mark has a new endeavor, and that is his Coop's Scoop newsletter. And we'll tell you where you can read it. But in the latest one for October 30th, he calls it the Downfall Edition. So, Mark, (laughs) all of this roundabout way to talk about the significance of the referendum and plebiscite in Chile and the similarities and differences with the U.S. elections, where we have to say that this election is historic, not just because it's Trump, but because it's also taking place in the middle of an uncontrolled pandemic and a crisis that could not only be social and political, but also constitutional. So let's talk a little bit about what parallels you may or may not see. Okay. (laughs) Well, there is, uh, as I said in the talk yesterday to the University of Chile, the political systems and the political situation in the United States and Chile have nothing in common and have all kinds of bizarre other aspects in common. And I'll I'll put it in personal terms and uh, uh, try and craft a little bit for this audience, which is my experience in Chile prepared me in uh, three ways for this period in our history, uh, for which I'm really grateful. I didn't know it at the time that I was being prepared, but I was. It prepared me to understand uh, what is the mentality of the uh, Trump supporters. Because, you know, everybody walks around after they wet their bed all night. They get up the next morning and say, I don't understand. How can 40% of Americans support the guy who does this and that? You know, I say, well, you know, I've been in places uh, as a reporter and otherwise where I've seen 40% or more of the population support somebody who throws people out of helicopters. And who, so, in other words, keeping them in cages, kids in cages are small potatoes? Compared- well, what I'm saying is that there's been a lot of words spilled in the last five years about who the Trump supporters are. And, of course, there's myriad Trump supporters. It's not really fair to lump them all together. It is fair, however, to to generalize with the understanding that you're generalizing. And 
all I'm saying is that people, especially now, should be prepared to understand that we have a constituency of people who are probably going to thrive under a Biden-Harris administration who believe in the destruction of our democratic institutions and are willing to act on it. And that that's something new. They've, they've been around for forever, but they've never been able, not since the 1920s, to come out of the woodwork like this. The other thing that Chile offered me in this crisis is... It is very complicated, so I'm going to retread just in a sentence or two something that you said so our audience understands it, which is that when Pinochet imposed his constitution in 1980, part of the constitution did call for a plebiscite in 1988, and in that plebiscite, in that up-and-down vote, if you voted yes, you were approving another eight years of the regime as it was, uh, and then some sort of soft transition to something softer. If not, if you voted no, then that meant that Pinochet's term would not be extended another eight years, regime would not be extended another eight years, and that elections for a democratic or civilian government would take place a year and a half later or two years later. Well, the parallel here operates on two planes. Okay? One is that to use a kind of commonplace American political science language, the Republicans wanted to turn this election into what you call a choice election, where the electorate is offered a choice between candidate A and candidate B. Now, that all sounds nice, but what that really means is that candidate A tries to turn candidate B into the devil, and you have to vote for candidate A because candidate B is devil. And candidate B in this case was Biden. And that uh, strategy uh, completely failed. It never took off. He could not demonize him. Trump could not distract us from uh, the pandemic or from the other issues like Congress not uh, passing a second aid package. And what that means is that the election has turned into something that the Democrats wanted, a plebiscite. And this is a plebiscite, and it feels exactly like the plebiscite in 1988, right? This is a vote of yes or no on the Trump administration. And not just that, without being too alarmist about it, I think it seems rather obvious that another four years of Trump would mean a fundamental change in the United States. I think he's too far out. I think he's too ill. I think he's too crazy. I think he's too isolated to construct a real dictatorship even in the next four years. But he could do some, some real serious damage and would do it. So this is an existential election. And that brings me to the third thing I learned from Chile, 
which is quite relevant for today. And it's the, what I now, I, I don't even have a descriptor for it anymore. I don't know what to call it. I don't know if we call it childish or infantile or delusional, but the uh, absurd debate to the degree that exists on the left that, oh, I don't know if I can bring myself to vote for Joe Biden. You know, there's going to be a neoliberal regime that he brings in and there's going to be the same imperialists and yada, 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 yada. Well, that's true. But, you know, that was true in Chile as well. That is to say, in 1988, again, there was a big organized left in Chile, but it had been decimated by the military government. And the emerging civilian forces were led by uh, mostly centrists and a few uh, moderate leftists, but basically a a centrist and even a center-right coalition to a degree. Uh, we knew who the president would be, we, and we knew what the civilian government would be, and we knew it would be a centrist, uh, fairly conservative, but not repressive and liberatory, in a sense, government, right? Very transitional. And it turned out to be that way because Chile's still in a transition 40 years later, right? But it begins with that. So for me, I don't care what Joe Biden's politics are. I mean, and people uh, who are talking about, well, you know, the DNC doesn't give enough time to AOC. Well, that may be, but that's not the issue today. But, you know, I don't care who the, uh, I don't care. I don't care what Biden, I know Biden's voting record. I know Kamala Harris's record. Right now, the question is, understanding that voting in this country and in most countries, but especially in a country where you don't feel particularly represented, voting is not an act of expression, right? It's not an act of preference, an expression of preference. It's a act of trying to manipulate outside forces to see who's going to hold the balance of power in the country that you live in. Right. Doesn't mean that you're necessarily part of it. Voting for Joe Biden doesn't make you a Democrat necessarily or a Biden supporter or the man in the moon. It means that you have minimal amount of intelligence to understand that this defeat is necessary. Well, this is a terrific place to take off from, Mark Cooper, and a lot there. And the last one, I think, a necessary point, because. Uh, even though it's a tiny part of the population, I think, but there is a part that just can't bring themselves to vote, you know, for what they call the Demopublicans and the Republicrats who often say, oh, there's not a dime's worth of difference between them. But, you know, of course, all of that ignore, it's like a an abstraction, that it doesn't fit the circumstances, and that I think you said it right. This is a plebiscite, and what we've learned is that there is a dime's worth of difference, and that what we're trying to prevent is, you know, the wholesale destruction of all of the, or or delegitimization of all the institutions. There's there's also a bigger question, too, which is that we face a very uncertain period ahead of us, Uh, certainly uh, economic turmoil, uh, civil unrest, political unrest, 
you know, the, the calendar here on solving some of these problems is very short, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't want to, I don't like to use a lot of rhetoric, but this is a period of struggle that's uh, coming uh, in front of us. And the people who are, people who are uh, saying, oh, I won't vote for Biden because, you know, he's this or that. It's a deeper problem than them not voting, okay? Not voting, you know, might not even make a difference if they live in California and New York, which most of them do. But it's a problem going forward and working politically because if you begin to, what's happened, I'm going to get in trouble here with, with the audience, but what, what's happened since the rise of Bernie, right, is that the word centrist has become an epithet, right? It's like I think it has a longer history than that, but yeah. Well, it depends what circles you run in, right? But it, out in, out there in the wide world, to say that you're in the center is not uh, self-denigrating, right? So well, all I'm saying is, is if you go forward in the world looking at a divide between you yourself, the progressive, the leftist, the socialist, whatever. And then there's the liberals, the centrists, the social democrats, and the opportunists. My question to you is, God forbid, if you ever get toward power, who do you plan to govern with? And how do you plan to get to power without making alliances with centrists and liberals and progressives and even conservatives on certain on certain issues, right? So I think that that reaction to Biden and what I'm saying is not a covert pitch for Biden at all. I I really don't <laughs> like, it. but it doesn't matter. I you know these are the choices that I have, and I can pretend that there's other choices, and it is not your moral duty to vote your conscience. It's your moral duty to make your vote make the society a better place to live for everybody, not a theatrical act that makes you feel better. Well, I think that that's really a good point to go from because we do have this first-past-the-post winner-take-all system. And so in so many ways that we know over and over again, the system is rigged. So to vote you know, your conscience in this makes you feel good, but does nothing. And it's maybe inconsequential in states like California, New York, but in swing states, it's very consequential, as we learned from Bush v. Gore and from 2000 and onwards. And it does make a difference. But I want to go back to a couple of other things, because you've said this is a plebiscite on Trump And he didn't want it to be about the pandemic, but here we are. We've just crossed yet another Rubicon, 100,000 cases in a day, 9 million cases in the U.S. Yes. And I'm I'm not, I don't know what the death toll today is. Uh, Well, well, it's a thousand a day, more or less, right? Well, it's been, it's a thousand a day this week. The projection is Christmas will be 3,000 a day. And we've got this, I didn't know about this, but I read yesterday that the White House has a science section and they came out and said that the pandemic is over and yes i said covid 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 that's all they ever talk about it's just the flu or whatever it's we've rounded the corner so here's, so here's the thing is that you know and you began by talking about that 40 percent. how can people 
who are these people who can support it? And I wanted to bring it, it's a kind of a roundabout way to kind of discuss that because one thing that you said to me privately months ago was how shocking it was how many people adhere to QAnon, more than 3 million. And now we see they may even have people in Congress and they actually actively, you know, and I saw a fascinating interview with, with some of these armed militias where the, uh-huh. you know, I do think that they're weak, even though they're armed, they're not, they don't have mass support in the society, but they can certainly be dangerous, but they're very prone to conspiracy thinking. And they've somehow come to believe that the Democrats are trafficking children and that they're pedophiles and it be, and, and, and here's where, you know, I want you to like, tell me, Oh, stop trying to be reasonable and rational and understanding this, but help me understand this. This conspiracy thinking and also like, you know, I just want to finish that point because in Chile and in the Soviet Union and in many places where there's no free flow of information, people rely on rumor, story, gossip and conspiracy thinking. And so, well, well, Susie, I think that there's again, we need the caveat that there's a lot of uh, you, you can't say that everybody who supports Donald Trump is the same. Many people support him for many different reasons. As I think you know, many of the votes that he got that specifically put him over the top in the upper Midwest, in the Rust Belt, uh, those were white working class people who, many of whom had voted for Obama twice. These were not closet conservatives. These were people who were mostly, I guess, apolitical and did not have a strong political identification. And as working class people were attracted to what Obama said, uh, were then disappointed by the lack of follow through. And they said, oh, we'll, we'll give Trump a try. I don't think those people are particularly dangerous. I think they've been abandoned. But I think what what you have now is you have a perversion of what the words, you have perversion and a degradation of what the words freedom and liberty mean. Uh, these grand concepts uh, have now been reduced down to, I, I want to wear a mask. I only care about myself. And I think that as the disorder in Chile a year ago responded to 30 years of accumulated frustration. I think what we're seeing with with what I predict will be, in fact, a blue wave or a blue tsunami, what's driving that is the accumulation of disgust uh, with this administration that is uh, morally uh, inept, politically inept, logistically inept, corrupt to its core. Uh, historically corrupt and uh, dangerous to, to human life. So what Trump is doing now, Trump realized, he, he realized about a week ago that the attacks on Biden were not sticking and time is up. So he's decided to sort of do a cram course that he can't articulate very well. But the logic of what he's doing is I'm going into, I'm killing two birds with one stone. 
I'm doing rally after rally after rally in the most diseased parts of the Midwest, right? Which is counterintuitive. That part is stupid, but that's where the voters are. So he should not be doing them there, but he is. These rallies are violative of all the norms of the public health norms in those areas, which at this moment are in a state of emergency because of the pandemic. And he's basically telling people, now that he's realized that the pandemic is what killed him, he's now overtly, overtly saying the pandemic doesn't matter. We don't care, right? And I I just wanted to say that I did come up with a simile. I, I think that the countries have been haunted by two plagues, the plague of Trump and the plague of COVID. They converged fully in the last week, but part of that convergence was, in fact, the big plague destroying the little plague. And the big plague is what beat Donald Trump. The resistance didn't. The resistance didn't lay a glove on him. He was beaten by himself, and he was beaten by a plague that had all the attributes of what a real opposition has. It has tenacity, relentlessness, focus, right, organization, and a killer instinct. And that's a formidable enemy to go up against. And yet, and we've really run out of time, Mark Cooper, and I've really appreciated all of that and the way that you tied it together. But and I think we should just end it by telling people about Coop Scoop, because mm-hmm. in your last one, you say, get over it. It's a landslide. It's a blue tsunami, as you just said. And yet it's not because the Democrats have effectively uh, created, no. you know, the sort of uh, mass mobilization to overthrow the tyrant. <laughs> but hardly. yeah, he did it to himself. And we are out of time. So, but just, I guess, finally, I, uh, I'm i going to invite you back once we have the Biden administration and we'll see. I happen to think that he had the right uh, message uh, for yeah. this election, yeah. despite what many, you know, my friends say. But this was precisely the anti-Trump sort of guide. Well, well, I mean, it, it, it wasn't an ideological election is what I'm just well, saying. Well, it's, it's yeah. also just in terms of the left. It's food for thought, because I would say to a great degree, the strategy that most of the left thought would not work is actually working. Susie, I want to give my uh, email. Yeah. If you're interested in my newsletter, just send an email to coopscoopnews. That's one word. Coopscoopnews at gmail.com. Send me a note and we'll we'll get you going. Mark Cooper, it's always a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Bye-bye, Susan. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.